For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to The Ancient World. Episode 9, The Other 99%. Nine episodes in and we finally made it to the halfway point, or at least what I originally envisioned as the halfway point. As super interesting as I've always found the Bronze Age collapse, I've also been pretty intimidated by the complexity of just what the heck was going on, especially considering that one major outcome of the collapse was that most civilizations stopped documenting things, which tends to make things very difficult for a historian, particularly an amateur historian like me. But just like in the rest of this podcast series, I'm going to try to do my best to give you what I wish I was able to find, which is some kind of coherent picture of the causes, events, and outcomes of this crazy and confusing period. So strap yourselves in, because this will be a very bumpy ride. To start things off, we really need to do two things. Go back in time a bit, and also shift perspective. History is usually written by the victors, but it's almost always written by the powerful, and this was particularly true in the ancient world. The common people were generally relegated to sources of taxes, labor, and military service, and were usually at the mercy of the policies of whatever ruler happened to be in power. I think it would be safe to say that the range of possible administrations in the Near East during the second half of the second millennium BC ran the gamut from fairly repressive and coercive to, well, downright Assyrian. We talked economics a bit back when we covered Hammurabi's Babylon. The major change instituted by the Amorites was that people went from living under a Ur-3 socialist type setup, where they were compelled to provide labor, taxes, and military service for the state, but were also provided with a basic social safety net by either the cities or the temples, to a more free market system, with less coercive labor and military service, minimal state upkeep of public services, private ownership of property and agricultural land, more entrepreneurship, more loans, a great deal of public indebtedness, and no social safety net, other than general debt holidays, which just kind of threw the whole system up in the air again. It's pretty safe to say that these examples represent the general range of options available during the period. One thing we really haven't taken a look at is, how did the people react when things got really bad? The assumption is probably that they were helpless to do anything other than take it, suffer, and die, which I'm sure was true in many cases. Or they could rebel, and then also probably suffer and die, at the hands of a king whose number one priority was generally keeping the military on his side. 
But there was a third option, and in the latter half of the second millennium BC, more and more people started taking it. The option of living outside the reach of the state. Agricultural workers, who occupied the lowest rungs of society, typically found their labor and harvests usurped to increase the wealth of those of higher status. Servants of the king, including specialist craftsmen, scribes, cult personnel, administrators, and particularly military elites, including charioteers known as Marianu, were often granted agricultural lands, sometimes entire villages, in return for their service. Of course, wealth was also generated by state conquests of other territories and by state resources, such as, in the case of Egypt, gold. But agricultural producers still faced an enormously heavy tax burden, leading to large levels of indentured servitude and outright debt slavery, particularly in the absence of debt holidays, a practice which had not seen use since the days of Amorite rule. When the workers decided they couldn't take it anymore, they began to flee in large numbers to inaccessible regions such as mountains or deserts, or cross borders into adjacent countries. The significance of this loss of labor and tax revenue is testified to in many international treaties of the period. Along with exchanges of gifts and royal wives, such treaties almost always included a clause demanding the return of all refugees. At some level, the kings knew that they could not afford to lose more than a certain amount of manpower before their states were at risk of collapse. When the people fled to the wild places, they often joined groups already living in these regions. Semi-nomadic outcasts who were given the name Habiru, roughly translating to robber or vagabond. All states of the period used this common term for these communities of outlaws and economic refugees, whom they generally regarded with a mixture of fear and disdain, often with good reason. In addition to draining states of their tax and labor pool, the Habiru also frequently engaged in raids of villages and even cities. Minor kings were sometimes forced to conclude treaties with Habiru leaders, who were sometimes exiled royals or former vassals themselves, and essentially pay them protection money to avoid being the target of attacks. The relationship became even more complex when states were soon forced to hire groups of Habiru, often on their own terms, to replace needed manpower or to use as mercenaries to fight in wars. Even as they were busy building massive new cities to name after themselves, the rulers of the period must have begun to realize that the gravy train of unprecedented conspicuous consumption was rapidly heading toward the brick wall of limited manpower and tax revenue, and the collision was bound to be a messy one. So, what's the connection of the Habiru to the Sea Peoples, the confederacy of seafaring raiders who began to menace the coastal communities of the Eastern Mediterranean at around the same time? This is a tougher nut to crack, but I'm going to give it a try. The first way we can approach the Sea Peoples is through their names. Merneptah listed those who attacked Egypt in 1209 BC as Libyans and neighboring Meshwesh, along with the Equish, Teresh, Luca, Sheridan, and Shekelesh, northerners coming from all lands. Ramesses III, who ruled during a series of attacks by similar seaborne invaders several decades later, listed them as the Peleset, Jeker, Shekelesh, Denyen, and Weshesh, lands united. Based on their names, the Equesh have been linked to the Achaeans, the Teresh to the Etruscans, the Sherdin, or Sharduna, to Sardinia, the Shekelesh to Sicily, the Peleset to the Philistines, and the Denian, or Danuna, to the Greek Danaeans. 
Even at the time of Merneptah, not all of these peoples were strangers to the eastern Mediterranean. The Luca, Sheridan, and Danuna are both briefly mentioned in the Amarna letters. An inscription by Ramesses II records an ongoing coastal threat by the unruly Sheridan, whom no one has ever known how to combat. They came boldly sailing in their warships from the midst of the sea, none being able to withstand them. Ramesses II subsequently incorporated Sheridan prisoners into the Egyptian army for service on the Hittite frontier. The Luka, another of the Sea Peoples, are established as being from southwest Anatolia, and fought alongside Muwatali II's Hittite army at the Battle of Kadesh. With some of the others, similarity in names is really about all we have to go on. In short, it's a rather confusing mix. Locals from Anatolia, peoples who had raided Egypt for some time, and newcomers apparently originating in the West. The common factors appear to be a large increase in eastern Mediterranean piracy and raiding, combined with significant population migrations. As I mentioned last week, the Sea Peoples are often described, and depicted, as traveling with both their families and their belongings. So, what events led to the increase in the numbers of both pirates and refugees in the eastern Mediterranean? Let's try to start in the west and see if we can follow the story eastward from there. Between the late 13th and early 12th centuries BC, roughly the time periods the Greeks assigned to the Trojan War, every major palace and fortified site of the Mycenaean Greek civilization was destroyed. Why did this happen? Well, there are a number of possibilities. One is internecine warfare between rival city-states, certainly no novelty to the Mycenaean Greeks, to whom the conquest and plunder of neighbors was considered a glorious act. No less a source than the Greek historian Thucydides later remarked that, in early times, Hellenes and the barbarians of the coasts and islands were tempted to turn to piracy, under the conduct of their most powerful men. Another possibility is an invasion from the north by a people later termed the Dorians, associated with the return of the mythical sons of Hercules to reclaim their hereditary lands in southern Greece. Yet another is that an existing group of sea peoples, probably based out of western Anatolia, attacked Greece from the coast. And, of course, we can't ignore the likely presence of the Greek equivalent of Habiru, forced to flee Mycenaean Greek society to avoid the ever-increasing demands of the elites. These outlaws and refugees would likely have joined any hostile external force challenging the existing power structure. Such a local component would help explain the type of selective destruction we observe, since such groups would be expected to focus their destruction on fortresses and strongholds, the symbols of their exploitation. Whatever the cause, the utter collapse of Mycenaean Greek society likely led to a wave of refugees and warrior bands spreading outward into the Aegean, new sea peoples joining those already active in the region. Greek migrants may have also entered Sardinia and Sicily at this time, and the sea peoples called Sheridan and Shekelish may have counted displaced Greeks among their numbers. Moving to the east, we quickly arrive at the coast of Anatolia, home of another great regional civilization, the Hittites. The Treaty of Kadesh, signed in 1258 BC, had made the Hittites and Egyptians into allies, which was fortunate since the current Hittite king, Tudhaliya IV, needed all the help he could get. 
Anatolia had spent decades in the throes of a severe drought and resulting famine, which highlighted their unstable agricultural base and was only relieved through emergency grain shipments from Egypt, sent by the pharaoh Merneptah. And famine was only one of Tutalia's worries. The Assyrian king Tukulti Nanurta I continued to oppress his eastern borders, and the west and southwest of Anatolia were in open rebellion, stirred up, at least in part, by the mysterious king of Ahiawa. Tutalia IV was able to take the city of Milawata, classical Miletus, from the rebels, but the tide of history was quickly turning against him. By the time his successor, Supaluliuma II, took the throne in 1207 BC, the fall of Hatti was imminent. Hittite records continue for only two more years. Then, silence. With the benefit of archaeology and the records of neighboring kingdoms, we can try to piece together what happened. For one thing, we know that the Hittite capital of Hattusas was sacked and destroyed at around this time. The likely culprits are the Phrygians, an Indo-European tribe who invaded Anatolia from neighboring Thrace. With all the other foreign and domestic pressures already at play, the loss of their capital seems to have been the last straw. Hittite civilization disintegrated almost immediately. The Phrygians continued to ravage across Anatolia before finally being checked at the Assyrian border. Those fleeing the Phrygian invasion and Hittite collapse, along with local Habiru, and all those just seeking relief from drought, famine, and scarcity, may have fled to the coast and formed one of the early groups of sea peoples. At around this time, numerous coastal cities in Anatolia and the Levant were also attacked and destroyed. From there, these groups may have moved on, both west and south, to contribute to such events as the collapse of Mycenae and the later invasions of Egypt. Both Greece and Anatolia would subsequently enter Dark Ages, from which they would not emerge for centuries. Moving into Syria and the Levant, we soon come across major Canaanite cities, including Ugarit, Aleppo, Carchemish, Kadesh, Megiddo, and dozens of others, all recently under Hittite domination. With the exception of Carchemish, which survived the collapse to become a powerful Neo-Hittite kingdom, ruled by a surviving branch of the Hittite royal family, all of these cities were utterly destroyed in the first few decades of the 12th century BC. Only a few coastal strongholds, notably Byblos and Sidon, were able to weather the assault and emerge relatively unscathed. The case of Ugarit, for which contemporary correspondence survives, is probably emblematic of the others. I mentioned the city briefly a few episodes back, as being a critical coastal hub linking eastern Mediterranean maritime trade with overland trade routes to the major Near Eastern civilizations. The king of Ugarit was named Hammurabi. Sure, why not? And in his early years, he's recorded corresponding with the Hittite king, Supaluliuma II. But it is a series of later correspondence, dating from around 1190 BC, that is of more immediate interest. The first letter is from his new overlord, the king of Alashaya, modern Cyprus, in response to a previous communication where Hammurabi had reported sighting a fleet of 20 warships off the coast. Regarding what you wrote me before, enemy ships were observed at sea. If it is true that ships were observed, reinforce yourself. Where are your troops and chariots? Are they not with you? If not, who will deliver you from the enemy? Surround your cities with walls and bring your troops and chariots into them. Watch out for the enemy and reinforce yourself well. 
Hammurabi responded to the great king, The ships of the enemy have been coming. They have been burning down my villages and have done evil things to the country. Does my father not know that all my troops and chariots are in Hati, and that all my ships are in Luka? They have not reached me, so the country is undefended. A subsequent communication from Eshuwara, senior governor of Alashaya, to Hammurabi went unanswered. Ugarit had already been destroyed. The fire that leveled it had baked the clay tablets, preserving the last desperate communications of the doomed city. The area would not be resettled for nearly a thousand years. Continuing southward along the coast, we come across the major cities of the southern Levant, all Egyptian possessions along the ways of Horus. These cities, including Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Akko, Jaffa, and numerous others, were also violently destroyed by the Sea Peoples. By around 1180 BC, their combined land and sea forces were once again approaching Egypt, and in greater numbers than Merneptah had faced. Merneptah had died in 1203 BC, and the intervening two decades had been turbulent ones for Egypt. Early in his reign, his son and successor, Seti II, was forced to confront a revolt in Upper Egypt under a rival pharaoh named Amun Meses, who may have been another son of Merneptah, or even possibly a son of Ramses II. The situation grew so dire at one point that Seti II was forced to abandon Thebes to his enemies, but he eventually returned and put down the rebellion in 1200 BC. Upon his death a few years later, he was succeeded by Siptah, who may have been the son of either Seti II or Amenmesis. I know, confusing, right? And who also died after a few short years on the throne. Upon Siptah's death in 1191 BC, his stepmother Tusret, wife of Seti II, pulled a Hatshepsut and assumed the title of Pharaoh. This action sparked a civil war, which ended roughly a year later with the ascension of the pharaoh Setnakte, who founded the 20th Egyptian dynasty before, you guessed it, passing away early in his reign. I said this period was turbulent, right? That brings us up to 1186 BC, and even as the whole Near East is falling apart, Egypt, ironically, is about to get a much-needed dose of stability. That stability came in the form of Ramesses III, the son of Setnakte, and the last great pharaoh of the New Kingdom. Good timing, Egypt. If you're going to face down the collapse of the entire eastern Mediterranean, at least you pick the right guy for the job. An initial skirmish against the Sea Peoples occurred in the fifth year of Ramesses III's reign, but the main assault came three years later. In 1178 BC, Ramesses reported that the foreign countries made a conspiracy in their islands. All at once the lands were removed and scattered in the fray. No land could stand before their arms, from Hatti, Kode, Karkemish, Arzawa, and Alashaya on, being destroyed at one time. A camp was set up in Amaru. They desolated its people. They were coming forward toward Egypt, where a flame was prepared for them. The Sea Peoples invaded Egypt using a combined land and sea assault. Medinet Habu, the mortuary temple of Ramesses III, has extensive written inscriptions and graphic depictions of the subsequent conflict. Egyptian art clearly portrays the Sea Peoples as a diverse collective, with each component group having its own distinctive styles of dress, weapons, and armor. Reliefs also show the Sea Peoples land army accompanied by women and children loaded in ox carts, further evidence that their intent was not just conquest, but also settlement. 
Ramesses III defeated the Sea Peoples in two great land and sea battles. Although the Egyptians had a reputation as poor seamen, they fought tenaciously. Ramesses lined the shores with ranks of archers, who kept up a continuous volley of arrows into the enemy ships when they attempted to land on the banks of the Nile. Then the Egyptian navy attacked, using grappling hooks to haul in the enemy ships. In the brutal hand-to-hand fighting which ensued, the sea people were utterly defeated. In the Harris Papyrus, Ramesses III reported, As for those who reached my frontier, their seed is not. Their heart and their soul are finished forever and ever. As for those who came forward together on the seas, the full flame was in front of them at the Nile mouths, while the stockade of lances surrounding them on the shore, prostrated on the beach, slain and made into heaps from head to tail. In fairly short order, Egyptian leadership and arms had managed to accomplish the impossible. The sea peoples had been stopped in their tracks, and the territorial integrity of Egypt had been maintained. But only just, and only at the borders of Egypt proper. The greater Egyptian empire of the New Kingdom had been lost, and would never again be regained. Following the defeat of the sea peoples, Egyptian forces drove them back into the Levant, where they settled into small kingdoms. One tribe who would retain their distinct identity for centuries were the Peleset, or Philistines, who gave their name to ancient Palestine. Pottery found at ancient Peleset sites was clearly Mycenaean Greek in style, suggesting a Hellenic origin for these biblical enemies of the Israelites. These new kingdoms would live alongside the older, established Phoenician kingdoms of Byblos and Sidon, as well as other kingdoms formed by migrating Aramean tribes from the Syrian desert. With no large regional powers, at the moment, to constrain them, and the coming advent of the Iron Age, the next few centuries would be a time of great cultural growth and conflict in the Levant. Although the Sea Peoples would never again unite to challenge Egyptian power, the wholesale destruction and resettlement of the Levant, combined with the disintegration of the Hittite state, meant that Egypt had effectively become cut off from Asia. While Babylonia and Assyria, whom we'll discuss momentarily, still existed, they were now out of reach. Trade and diplomatic exchange between the major powers ceased. Egypt had vast resources of its own, and would survive the ensuing period of relative isolation, but the international system it had been plugged into for the past 300 years was simply gone. Moving inland from the coast, the impact of the Sea Peoples was somewhat attenuated, but other destabilizing forces were also at play. In Assyria, King Tukulti to I, two decades after his conquest of Babylon, was facing an uprising. Triggered by the vast expenditures of his numerous military campaigns and lavish construction projects, In 1196 BC, he found himself besieged in his self-named capital, by his own sons no less, and eventually murdered. Upon his death, the Middle Assyrian kingdom lost her sure footing. Most notably, the Assyrian commitment to yearly campaigning was abandoned for most of the next century. He was succeeded by his son, Ashur-Nadin-Alpi, then his grandson, Ashur-Nirari III, each of whom only reigned for a few short years. Ashur-Nirari III was himself killed by his uncle, another son of Tukulti-Nanurta I named Enlil-Kaduri-Usur, in 1187 BC. Meanwhile, Babylonia was itching for a rematch. Less than a decade after their defeat by Assyria, the Kassites overthrew the last Assyrian-installed vassal king and replaced him with Adad-Shuma-Usur, who would have the longest reign of any Kassite ruler at 30 years. 
For most of Adad Shuma Usur's reign, Assyria retained control of the country's north, including the city of Babylon itself. In 1183 BC, the king took advantage of the period of Assyrian confusion to march his armies north, defeat the Assyrian king Enlil-Kaduri-Usur in battle, and retake the city of Babylon. Apparently, the defeat was so humiliating that Enlil-Kaduri-Usur's own soldiers seized him and handed him over to the Babylonian king. An Assyrian vizier named Ninurta Apal Eker took the opportunity to usurp rule in Assur. His reign would only last two years. Two years after that, Adad Shuma Usur also died, passing the throne of Babylon to his son, Melishipak II. I know what you're saying, but Scott, can't you find any way to complicate the situation even further? Maybe while giving us even more crazy Near Eastern king names to remember? Done and done. We really haven't discussed our old friends the Elamites for a while, except maybe in their role as kickball for Kuragalsu I, but it's about time to bring them back into the picture. Three dynasties ruled Elam in succession between 1500 and 1100 BC. We know very little about the first, other than they ruled until around 1400 BC and claimed the title of King of Susa and Anshan. The second dynasty ruled until around 1200 BC, during the period termed the Middle Elamite Kingdom. In 1250 BC, the Elamite king Untashnaparisha built the city he named after himself, as mentioned last episode. The city was home to a massive ziggurat, dedicated to Naparisha, the great god of Elam, and Inshushinak, the patron deity of Susa. Due to the extreme solidity of its construction, including the use of millions of baked mud bricks, the structure remains the best-preserved ziggurat of the Near East. Following Tukulti Nandurta I's conquest of Babylon in 1225 BC, the Elamites made several forays into the region under the king Kidin-Hutran, capturing the city of Nippur and attacking Isin. Around 1180 BC, the Elamite king Shuturuk Nahunte married the eldest daughter of the new Kassite king, Melishipak II. At some point, Shuturuk Nahunte came to believe that this marriage entitled him to the throne of Babylonia as well. In around 1155 BC, he led the armies of Elam into Babylonia, sacked numerous cities, including Durkuragalzu, Sippar, Akkad, and Eshnuna, and terminated the reign of the last Kassite king, Zababashuma Idin. The many spoils brought back to Susa by Shutrak Nahunte included such famous monuments as the Stele of Naram Sin and the Law Code of Hammurabi. His son and heir, Kutir Nahunte, also later plundered the cult statue of Marduk, patron god of Babylon. The memory of this disastrous time was preserved by the Babylonians as part of a later invocation for the god of justice. An aggressor attacked us, plundered our flocks. A wicked enemy came quickly against us. The evil one laid waste our countryside. The foe captured us. His bow was knocked to let the arrows fly. But we ourselves, we did not know how to grasp a quiver. Elam overwhelmed our sacred localities. We did not know the great craft of war. Babylon, its loins have been stripped. After the fall of the Kassite dynasty, Akkadian rule of Babylonia resumed under King Marduk Kabat Aheshu, who managed to drive the Elamites off through a series of campaigns launched from his home city of Isin. The new Babylonian king then turned his attention northward. Just prior to the Elamite conquest, the new king of Assyria, Ashurdan I, had also annexed and plundered a large chunk of northern Babylonia. 
Marduk-Kabbadahesu attacked the Assyrians and managed to capture the city of Ekelatum. His successor, Itti Marduk-Balatu, also battled the Assyrians, as well as frequent Elamite raids under their new king, Shelak and Shushinak. Both the Babylonian king, Itti Marduk-Balatu, and the Assyrian king, Ashurdan I, passed away in the same year, 1133 BC. But the conflict continued under their successors, with Babylonian forces penetrating deep into Assyrian territory before being driven back. The subsequent Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar I, managed to de-escalate the situation on the northern border. But don't get him wrong, peace was nowhere on his mind. He just needed to secure the north so that he could devote all his energies toward a massive attack against Elam to the east. Around 1120 BC, in the hottest month of the summer, Nebuchadnezzar led the armies of Babylon in a surprise attack on Elamite forces along the river Ulaya. The heat of the day was such that a later telling reported, the axes held in the hand burned like fire, and the road surfaces were scorching like flame. There was no water in the wells, and drinking supplies were unavailable. The strength of the powerful horses slackened, and the legs of even the strongest man weakened. Nebuchadnezzar routed the Elamite forces and went on to sack the Elamite capital of Susa and retrieve the cult statue of Marduk. The Babylonian assault was so devastating that it effectively destroyed Elam as a regional power for the next 300 years. In 1115 BC, a new king took the throne in Assyria. Tiglath-Pileser I would rule for nearly 40 years during which he would reassert Assyria's strength in the region and extend Assyrian control to Syria, Anatolia, and the shores of the Mediterranean. His first campaigns were to the north, where he fought against Neo-Hittite petty kingdoms in eastern Anatolia and hostile tribes, including the Arartians and Mycians, near Lake Van. Next, he led his armies against the new waves of western desert nomads, primarily Aramaeans, who had been driven eastward into Assyrian lands by the effects of climate change. And this is as good a time as any to discuss both topics, desert nomads and climate change. Earlier, we briefly touched on the drought and resulting famine that had been taking place in Hatti prior to the collapse of that kingdom. Evidence shows that between 1200 and 1000 BC, the eastern Mediterranean entered a period of decreased rainfall and increased temperature, enough to cause widespread starvation among those living in marginal territories, such as steppe lands and deserts. These pressures sent local tribes fleeing, desperate for survival, in all directions, northwards to Assyria, eastwards into Babylonia, and westwards toward the Mediterranean coast. Once they arrived, they typically seized lands from their current occupants, who were themselves weakened by famine, to form their own small kingdoms. An Assyrian chronicle says that during this period, the famine was so severe that people ate one another's flesh. Aramean clans plundered the land, seized the roads, and conquered and took many fortified cities of Assyria. Citizens of Assyria fled to the mountains to save their lives. The Arameans took their gold and silver and their property. Even as he was under mounting pressure to check these migrations, Tiglath-Pileser I also managed to launch a devastating attack on Babylon. In the early 11th century BC, Nebuchadnezzar I's brother and successor, Marduk-Nadin-Ahi, had launched a failed raid to capture the Assyrian capital of Assur. Tiglath-Pileser I responded by leading his armies into Babylonia and, well, let's let him tell it. I marched to the land of Karduniash. 
I conquered the cities Dur-Kuragalzu, Sippar, Babylon, and Upi. I massacred them in great number. I plundered countless amounts of their booty. I conquered the palaces of Babylon belonging to Marduk Nadinahi, the king of Karduniash, and I burned them with fire. Twice I drew up a battle line of chariots against the king, and I defeated him. The remainder of Tiglath Pileser I's rule was preoccupied with countering the ever increasing tide of Aramean invasions into Assyrian territory. By around 1070 BC, the situation had become so dire that his successor, Ashurbel Kala, made an alliance with the Babylonian king Marduk Sapikzeri to counter the growing threat to both their kingdoms. It was a losing battle. Within two decades, the Middle Assyrian Empire would completely collapse, and Assyria would find itself, once again, driven back to its small enclave around the city of Assur. It would not emerge again for another century, but when it did, it would be in its most potent incarnation yet, the Neo-Assyrian Empire. In Babylonia, the decline of urbanism, begun centuries before under the heirs of Hammurabi, accelerated toward the end of the second millennium. Nippur, for example, had likely been reduced to nothing more than a small population living around its ancient ziggurat. The system of urban infrastructure and irrigation canals had collapsed almost entirely, exacerbated by shifts in the flow of the Euphrates, and increased soil salinization led to poorer crop yields. The weakened leadership was unable to mobilize state resources to counter these effects, let alone the Aramean invasions and Babylonia soon drifted into a period of obscurity and irrelevance. Now let's circle back to Egypt. The heavy cost of the battles against the Sea Peoples had slowly exhausted the Egyptian treasury, and the regional drought had led to grain rationing, both factors resulting in worker unrest. Despite his troubles, Ramesses III continued his efforts to emulate his famous predecessor, Ramesses II, building important additions to Luxor and Karnak, and constructing a massive mortuary temple at Medinet Habu, among the largest and best preserved in Egypt. The uncertainty of the times is apparent from the massive fortifications which were built to enclose Medinet Habu, including an Asiatic-style Migdal gatehouse at the entrance. No prior mortuary temple had ever needed such protection. In 1155 BC, Ramesses III's long 31-year reign was ended, in a harem plot by one of his minor queens who sought to kill him and install her son as pharaoh. Examination of Ramses' mummy, performed in 2011 AD, showed a deep knife wound in the throat, hinting that the plot may have actually succeeded in killing the pharaoh. In all other respects, though, the plot failed. The perpetrators were caught, tried, and executed, their bodies destroyed by fire so they could not attain the afterlife, and Ramesses' designated son and heir succeeded him to the throne. The subsequent line of pharaohs, all named Ramesses, 4 through 11, all appear to be either the sons or grandsons of Ramesses III. Most had short reigns, and ruled from cities on the Nile Delta that had been constructed under the reign of Ramesses II. Ramesses IV launched several large military expeditions to the stone quarries of Wadi Hammamat and the turquoise mines of Sinai. His son, Ramesses V, faced border struggles against the Libyans, worker unrest, and the growing power of the priesthood of Amun at Thebes. In 1145 BC, he was overthrown by his uncle, Ramesses VI, under whose reign Sinai was abandoned and the Egyptian frontier pulled back to the edge of the eastern delta. 
Under his son, Ramesses VII, the Egyptian economy became unstable and grain prices began to soar, leading to widespread unrest. We don't know much about his successor, Ramesses VIII, except that he was a son of Ramesses III and reigned for about a year. Ramesses IX, who was probably a grandson of Ramesses III's, returned some stability to Egypt during his 18-year rule, but left little in the way of records or monuments. During the reign of Ramesses X, there was a large Libyan influx into the western Nile Delta, one that Egypt was apparently powerless to prevent, and Nubia also slipped out of Egyptian control. The long 28-year reign of Ramesses XI, which began in 1107 BC, brought the 20th Egyptian dynasty to a close. Records from the time reflect a general collapse of centralized power, as well as open civil war between the pharaoh, based in Pi Ramesses, and the high priests of Amun in the south, whose power had become hereditary and largely outside of royal control. By the 11th century, the temples owned one-third of Egypt's land, and the Temple of Amun at Karnak was the epicenter of priestly control over all of Upper Egypt. In the 19th year of his reign, Ramesses XI was forced to accede to the formation of a triumvirate. The high priest of Amun, Herihor, was given rule over Upper Egypt, which he exercised from Thebes. Meanwhile, Smendes, a powerful governor of Lower Egypt, was given absolute control over his territories. The division reflected Egyptian realities, and the death of Ramesses XI in 1078 BC just confirmed things the Egyptian New Kingdom was at an end. Over the next few centuries, conquest by outside powers, once almost undreamed of, would become the Egyptian norm. So, collapse enough for you? Just to recap a few of the factors, a vast chasm between rich and poor, conspicuous consumption in the face of a declining tax and labor base, ecological disasters, mass population migrations and invasions, and interstate warfare combined with internal succession disputes. And the end result? Mycenaean Greece and Anatolia in a dark age, Canaan destroyed and repopulated, Egypt under divided rule and confined to its core territories, and Babylonia, Assyria, and Elam all holding on by their fingernails. Sure sounds like a Bronze Age collapse to me. So what comes next? Well, the short answer is a break, for me at least, until sometime in July. Holding down a full-time job while producing this podcast on a weekly-ish schedule has been a pretty challenging endeavor. Don't get me wrong, this is definitely one of the most fun projects I've ever taken on. I'm learning a lot every episode, and I'm still 110% committed to taking things all the way up to 500 BC. But the realities of upcoming work and business travel, along with other commitments, means that I really won't be able to get traction on this project again until sometime in July. But just think of all the fun stuff coming up. The Phoenicians, Israelites, and Neo-Assyrians, not to mention the Greeks, Romans, and Persians, and certainly not to forget the Chavan, Olmec, and Maya. The next 500 years are packed with lots of interesting civilizations that I'm really looking forward to digging into. In the meantime, thanks again for listening. Please stay subscribed, and feel free to check the companion website, ancientworldpodcast.com, for periodic updates. And if you know anyone else who might like this podcast, please feel free to pass the word along. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time on The Ancient World.